This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Power Athlete Radio. This week, we give you a very meaty conversation with Dr. Warren Willey. Based out of Idaho, Dr. Willey has built a career on being a perpetual student, as he's currently working on a second master's degree, and he's passing that knowledge along. He's an author, consultant, educator, and of course, avid banger of weights. Working predominantly with bodybuilders, Doc has made it his life's work to find out how to optimize diet and training without succumbing to the health detriments that have traditionally plagued the sport. As we hear from Dr. Willie, food is a way to manipulate hormones, but with great power comes great responsibility. Some interesting points made along the way include how hormones' responses to nutrition can be subject to accommodation just as they are to in training. Also, how timing pre- and post-workout meals is still a very relevant approach to fine-tuning your results. Stay tuned for a really great discussion on the science of fueling, feeding, and functioning at high levels. That's right, people. Actual information about things not relating to movies coming your way. This is episode 133. What's happening, Power Athlete Nation? Welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Hashtag Power Athlete HQ. Hashtag Caveman Coffee Company. Hashtag We Don't Fuck Around. Hashtag Empower Your Performance. This is Denny. Today I'm joined with John, Luke, and Tex. And our guest today is Dr. Warren Willey. He's the medical director of the Fitness Medicine Clinic, the author of seven books. Uh, he works with athletes, does consultations with bodybuilders, weightlifters, powerlifters, you name it. Travels the country speaking to the medical community about optimizing hormones and just utilizing some of the lab tests that uh, he and his group find, um, some of the information that they come up with. So we're excited to have him on. Um, Dr. Willie, thanks for taking the time to talk some shop with us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you guys. Um, you know, we kind of, we talked a little bit of off the air about what you, you know, what you're doing over there um, at the Fitness Medicine Clinic. And, um, you know, John reached out to you and, and he was excited about having you on the show. But can we just kind of start off with uh, letting our listeners know a little bit about what, you know, what you're doing and um, what are like some of the athletes that you get a chance to work with? Absolutely. You know, I, I guess I'm in the religious field because I consider myself a preacher with all the cr uh, stuff I yell and scream at people with every day. But my job is basically to help athletes obtain that optimum self, not only through their sport or their world record goal they're shooting for, or that very, very expensive piece of plastic called the trophy, whatever. I want them to perform at their best, but most importantly to me from my background is make sure they're doing it in a healthy fashion because it's absolutely amazing. When I first got into this working with athletes years ago, realizing that you're probably better off being a fat slob, fat uh, couch potato than you are a professional level athlete because your health, if you look at the true health parameters, holy crap, these guys and gals need a little work. So 
I consider my job being to coach you to your best, but at the same time making sure you're healthy so you can enjoy your grandkids and your great-grandchildren someday. That's pretty good. Hey, Doc, uh, you got like a CV. Where did you go to school? Where did you do your undergrad sure. and all that? I did my undergrad at, at Colorado State University and then graduate school in uh, Kansas City at the University of Health Sciences. And right now I'm finishing up a, a master's in, in metabolic and endocrinology at the University of Florida. So I'm a permanent school guy. Um, I, I just love learning all this stuff and continuing expanding my education. Right now I live in southeast Idaho because I'm an outside guy too. I have three little kids and my lovely bride and I, we spend all of our time outside skiing, snowshoeing and snowmobiling in the winter and four-wheeling and mountain biking all summer long. So that's why I live out here in the boonies. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, well, I mean, just, um, you know, I know we were wrapping a little bit off air, but uh, I actually read your book, I mean, almost 10 years ago. It was recommended to me. And uh, what was what really kind of drew me to it was, uh, you know, your different approaches in terms of cycling the diet. And it actually was, um, in the book, was diets that I was using similarly and cycling one with the anabolic diet and then also that, you know, like a modified kind of uh, carb drop diet. And, uh, and then also, you know, the zigzag stuff. So when I remember I got into it and I read it, I was like, man, this is actually the first person that I'd seen that had ever written anything and had great experience kind of combining all these together and then kind of using them within an algorithm. So um, I meant to reach out to you and it was funny. It just seems like yesterday and now all of a sudden here it's been like seven or eight years and, uh, and here we are finally meeting up. But uh, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you kind of got into this a little bit or more importantly, you know, some observations that you've seen in different diets you've worked and then you kind of figured out that you could kind of combine these two to really kind of maximize performance and effect? Absolutely, but you may be sorry you just asked me that because you better sit back. I'm going to tell you my life story now. Fucking <laughs> bring it. I got nowhere to be. So honest truth, I was a very sickly kid. I grew up at National Jewish Asthma Center in Denver, Colorado, and uh, my dad used to joke he'd tie a string around my toe when it got windy on the eastern front in Colorado because he swore I was going to disappear. And he started me weightlifting at age 11, a little sand-filled weight in my basement, and, and I never turned around. I got, he got me a prescription at age 12 for my 12th birthday to what was then muscular development, now called muscle and fitness. And I read those things cover to cover. Back then, there wasn't any nutritional ads. The only ads were for weight equipment because there weren't that many gyms way back then, probably before most of you guys were born. But um, just read it and got into it and started – personal training. I got a job at a gym as, as a maintenance guy, but then I got to help people with their diets and, and started reading all the nutritional literature I could. And long story short, I started realizing that food was affecting my asthma. So what I was eating was causing other effects elsewhere. And it really made me realize, my gosh, what crosses our lips is very powerful. And it can make you sick, it can make you better, it can make you strong, it can make you weak. And that, that connection I made with myself really propelled me into what I do. Um, it was, and I'm going to fast forward now to I was a physician at the Mayo Clinic. It was 1997, early January or, or February 97. And by then I was working with a number of athletes on, on levels. And I, one particular uh, professional bodybuilder I was with, he's about 290, probably 5'7". Uh, him and his girlfriend and, and me and my soon-to-be wife uh, were out to dinner with him. And we're sitting, and I was working on some few ideas with how food worked with hormones, but I was missing something. 
and, and backing up a little, I started realizing that my heavens, especially for weight loss, it's not necessarily a caloric issue. You can't exercise off your fat and you can't undereat your fat. And that's why the gyms will be, I'm, I'm dreading, I'm sure you guys are, January through March here real soon. The gyms are going to be packed with people, and we're just waiting for March to get here so they all leave. We call well, them resis. Uh, the resolutionists. Yeah, 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 they're the resolutionists. So, like, we see them, and, like, Luke refers to them as the resis. And I'm like, what's that? He's like, the resolutionists. They're like the revolutionists, but they're doing the opposite. They're committing to something and then not following through. Well, only for like 60 days and you can't fucking well, do six, Well, like when, when we trained at that other gym, the resis all showed up and they were gone in three weeks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, think about it. If, if exercise and hard and eat and less really worked, they'd probably still be there in April and June. So, Doc, uh, but so, it, so what you're saying is that exercise and food alone will not get you in shape. No, absolutely not. If you use them to your advantage, in other words, if you understand the hormonal basis behind those things, then it can work. And I'll give you a quick example. I'll jump forward a little. I have some of my biggest non-surgical weight loss people, 250, 300 pounds. We don't calorie restrict them. I say, eat these foods, not these foods. Eat at this time of day, not this time of day, and as much as you want. And I have 300 pound weight losses in my clinic. And they're exercising maybe two, three times a week. You can't ask a 500-pound man to go do anything more than five minutes on a treadmill twice a week or his knees are going to buckle out from under him. And so that's the way we start. And that's part of the hormonal aspect of eating that I realize back to my story in early 97. I'm sitting here with this monster and his girlfriend, and he, our food was delayed. Don't know why, but all of a sudden, right in front of me, he turns white. He starts sweating. He looks terrible. He starts slurring his speech. He gets up, and he stumbles out the into the parking lot, literally takes out three or four tables on the way. This guy's like a bull in a china shop. And I follow him out, and his girlfriend comes out. And I'm looking at him. You know, I knew all the drugs he was on. I knew what he was doing. Uh, and I'm like, okay, what's going on here? I looked at his girlfriend and said, what has he been doing that I don't know about? You have to remember. You have, and I really started grilling her. And she goes, you know? He's been injecting this stuff three times a day before his big meals. And I was like, oh, shit, he's taking insulin. I had heard about it in the World Games. This is 97. I heard about it in the 96 World Games that uh, there was an insulin creatine cocktail going around with some of the athletes. Um, and so I had the maitre d' call 911. I, we grabbed some sugar granules, and I mixed it in some water and just started rubbing his buccal membranes around his under his tongue and around his cheeks and stuff till the EMS got there and we gave him a shot of glucagon and he popped up. Well, long story short, he's doing a high dose of regular insulin before meals. And it was, I actually reported in the Physician and Sports Medicine 1997 October edition. It was the first report in the world on using insulin as an anabolic aid. And we had talked prior to coming on air, the difference in the bodybuilders, you know, look at the Frank Zanes to the to the to the guys today, I mean, they're just completely different. And Doc and was you, uh, was he using like a Humalog, like a short acting, or was he yep, using the long acting? Humalog, twenty five to fifty units every meal, which wow. is ungodly amounts. Yeah. Well, no, that's yeah, that's a big amount. Uh, the bodybuilder guys I used to train with would take uh, stuff like I think they would inject, you know, eight to ten, twelve IU's of that, and then they would make this. Uh, this cocktail, or it was like a shake that had, I think it was like a thousand calories, and it was like, you know, all this. It was basically, I, I, I always saw making, I always joked that it was the kitchen sink, that they were throwing everything <laughs> yes. plus the kitchen sink in there. And then they would pound that thing, and like literally, those dudes would sit down and they would like grow in size. But uh, uh, 
yeah, that's yeah. So I, I I've actually been fortunate enough to to see that stuff, but it's um yeah it's okay. So yeah, go on, go on. It oh no, I appreciate your input. It's incredible. And you know the one I'll, I'll tell you a little something to do just on the side when you have a chance. Go back to the early '80s and look up a bodybuilder named Tim Belknap. He's the only guy that had the look that we see now back then when Lee Haney was the king running everything and, and the Zanes and the uh, Bob Parises and stuff with those beautiful classic physiques. The biggest one of them was about 205 pounds. Well, if you look at Tim Belknap, he looks like today's bodybuilders. You know why? He was a type 1 diabetic. He was using insulin. So way back in the 80s, we have proof that, hey, man, insulin is a very anabolic aid. Well, now spring forward, that, that writing that article and then talking to other physicians and, and physiologists around the world after I wrote that and first uh, presented it, I, I, it, was the, it was the key. It was like, okay, this is where optimal dieting comes in. Whether your goal is weight loss or muscle gain, it is a hormonal issue, and that's what I need to focus on. What are the hormones doing when I eat? And insulin is probably one of the biggest guns, insulin, leptin, insulin, glucagon. That those, those three right there really control fat loss, fat gain, muscle gain, muscle loss. And understanding how food plays with those hormones, in other words, the type of food you're eating, how you associate it before or after your exercise session, how long exercise is, how high your cortisol or stress level is, what is your testosterone level doing, when do you go to sleep, are you eating your carbs late at night or early in the morning? All these different factors play in to make this huge hormonal play that if you do it right, optimizes you. And hence the book Better and Steroid kind of talks about that. I call it food timing, the importance of the pre and post-workout meal. And then really alternating your diet style so the hormones don't get used to what you're doing. Well, it's it's just like anything. It's like the law of accommodation. I mean, when if you lift weights and you go and you do the exact same workout every single day, you're going to have an accommodating effect, and all of a sudden right. you're going to, you know, null and void. I mean, it's really you know where you see injuries and a lot of problems. People you know don't understand whether it be progressive overload or some form of you know conjugate method. I mean, all these things are based on the idea of either you're you know changing movements, you're rotating volume, you're changing intensity, you know, you're cycling it through and through, just trying to continue to you know. And I mean, it's really just you know whether you do it daily or longer it's some form of periodization and what's amazing is people don't do any periodization in their diet it's like hey right. my macros are you know I got to eat x amount of calories I'm going to eat this and they, they get stuck and then they wonder why they really never make any changes in their uh, in their physique and they're kind of stuck within these ruts and I mean we, we run into it all the time with our training and people trying to pair it up and you know and then they also uh, you know Whenever I always do anything, we start talking about diet or nutrition. The first question, and you hit it right on the head, is uh, what does your sleep look like? Um, yes. I remember uh, Stan Efferding, um, who you know uh, went in and you know world champion powerlifter, and then won uh, the Masters for the Olympia. Uh, I remember having a good conversation with him, and he was like, you know, he was at, or at his leanest and where he was the biggest when he won the Masters Olympia. I think he was sleeping like 16 hours a day. Wow. He was sleeping 12 hours, and they go to the gym, uh, work out eat, sleep, go back to the gym, work out, eat, and sleep. And so he was counting like 15 to 16 hours a day. And he's like, I was, you know, 280 pounds and the biggest and strongest. He's like, I just couldn't believe how much sleep it was. And uh, <laughs> I always remember being like, well, I mean, there's a reason babies sleep that much. So it kind of makes sense, <laughs> you know. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, that recovery, you know, and that's honestly, if you look at the mechanism of anabolic steroids, it's recovery. That's really their secret. If you really dig down into what they do, they optimize recovery. And that's why uh, those are used so much and, and so prevalent nowadays when really if you focus on 
periodization of your diet, periodization of your exercise, getting adequate sleep, supporting yourself nutritionally or supplementally, trying to keep stress down, boy, but you can get the same effect without the side effects. And that's that's really what we try to push in my clinic with all the athletes coming through. Is would you would, uh, would you say that in terms of you know like um and I, I think where this is headed is really that idea of like a uh, like a training window I I guess you could call it like a like nutrient timing with like hey if you're going to train like like for us we all train at six in the morning I mean at least Luke and and the guys in this room do because uh, you know we have a busy day and if we don't get it done in the morning there's always reasons to not train. So like we come in in the morning and it really becomes like the most paramount time is really that nutrient window where like what are you doing for your pre, your intra, and your post-workout meals. And uh, that's really kind of what I've seen the most, at least in any of the changes that I've ever made and any people we've ever worked with. It's the people that really start just realizing that almost like 70% of those of, uh, of the gains really come from, the, from that kind of nutrient training window. Absolutely. I could not agree more. That is the secret. That's the, that's the reason behind the title of that book you read, Better Than Steroids. Because if you figure that out, what you just said, it is better than steroids. I have seen just un incredible results in older men too. I have an 82-year-old, I call him an underwear model because he looks so good without a shirt on. I will absolutely not take my shirt off in front of him. And he was not, he did not come with that way. He came to me with hypertensive renal disease. He came to me with high cholesterol. He was diabetic. He was sick. And we started working on nutrient timing around his exercise and optimize his sleep cycle. And right now, and here at 82 year old, 82 years old, the guy has a six pack. He looks lean. His health parameters look better than most teenagers nowadays. And the secret was just that understanding how to optimize the hormones using food at the right time. Well, can, can you take us through a little example? Um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I mean, we can do it, but I'd also like to hear you kind of go through it a little bit and kind of game plan. Like for us, for example, if we train at six in the morning, uh, what would be kind of that, um, uh, you know, like take me through a day in the life of uh, if you were doing my nutrition planning, like, uh, you know, get up early, intra-workout, post-workout, how does it all look? Sure. Um, if I may, let me go real even deeper and let me share with you some of the labs and the uh, the body measurements and what we do to help us determine really to dial it in. Because I could give you a, a basic outlay, okay, eat this and this and take this supplement at this time, but it actually becomes very specific to the individual based on their current lab work. So if I saw you first there, my friend, a couple days before we started your regimen, we'd get an AM fasting lab before you exercise, before you eat anything, have you drink lots of water. I'd check your whole hormone panel, so your cortisol DHEA ratio. I would check your total free testosterone and then every other hormone underneath that via uh, uh, estradiol. Uh, we'd even check uh, aromatase activity. Uh, we check all your hormones, adrenal hormones, your pituitary hormones, your obviously your thyroid, very, very important optimal thyroid function. I would check different markers in your lipid profile. So we call them apolipoproteins uh, or lipoprotein biomarkers. So your good and bad cholesterol actually have particle sizes underneath them that we look at that respond directly to food. And so what I mean by that, if someone has an, a high LDLP or a high small dense LDL in the presence of a certain genotype, because I do some genetic testing too, to really dial this stuff in on a personal level, then I know when you came to me, you're eating too many carbohydrates for your body. That's just one example. We look at inflammatory markers, what's your IL-6 to IL-10 ratio, what's your tissue necrosis factor, 
all these different things come into play. So when I'm sitting with you, before I write your regimen out, I see you on the inside and I see you on the outside. I have you stand right in front of me with just some skivvies on, and we look at where you're holding your fat, where you're where you're built well. Believe it or not, especially with women, where they hold their fat is very hormonally dependent. So if a woman has larger hips, uh, but a tiny waist, they're they have too much estrone, uh, E1. Uh, versus estradiol or progesterone. So I know, okay, I need to optimize the hormones for this woman this way. Men um, the same way, the where they're built, where their body temperature is cool compared to warm. Is their thyroid working? What's the blood flow supplied to that area? Are they always going to have thin legs? We see guys all the time, they're just complaining about their legs. And if you feel them, they're actually cooler compared to their upper body muscles. And so I can help optimize that with some thyroid intervention be a supplementation or even short-term medication. Uh, then we do all your body comps. I, too, have a bod pod, uh, like we talked earlier. I still don't see how you fit in there, my friend. Three Dude, uh, I do not know how you fit in that thing. Uh, you know what? I, I, I probably just yoga it in there. I mean, I think skinny, I'm pretty, I was pretty flexible back then, so I just got in. But, uh, no, I mean, it's, uh, you know, um, uh, I, I think, you know, Charles Polkin had a bunch of stuff. Years ago, I read about talking about, like, uh, you know, people that store body fat. I think it was women that, like, store it in, like, the glutes and the thighs had higher estrogen than those that stored it in, like, the belly. And then I think for men, like, storing it around the breast tissue and, like, the was, was estrogen, whereas, like, the low back uh, was, like, cortisol. I mean, usually what I call dad fat, which always happens to all new fathers that, you know, don't, yes. don't, don't get to sleep. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I have twin daughters that are four, and I remember uh, – uh, you know, everything was going great, and all of a sudden, I didn't sleep more than like 15 minutes for three, for three months. And I remember I like reached back one day, and I was like, "What the fuck is this?" Yes. And uh, I called my buddy Rob Wolf, and I was like, "I got back fat." He's like, "No, it's dad fat. That's high cortisol. That's from not sleeping." And um, and so like every, you know, whenever I go on to do any training or stuff, I'm always like, "Man, how do I uh, how do I limit this dad fat thing? I gotta like." <laughs> fucking fight the dad fat yes you do yeah that's exactly right brother and getting your body calm getting your grip strength grip strength i think is one of the best markers for every athlete out there to follow spend two hundred dollars on a grip strength meter and follow your grip strength it is probably the first indication of overtraining or under recovery you can have if your grip strength starts to diminish even by a little even one or two kilos you need to adjust your eating and supplementation schedule and or sleep schedule. Great, great way to monitor yourself out there, all you uh, athletes, and it's simple to do. And there's some excellent studies just talks about long-term uh, uh, health and well-being. Longevity is based on grip strength. One doc, if, 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 if you were to, uh, like we, it's just so ironic. We, we did all this stuff in college where uh, we would come in and, you know, within our training program, we would actually test our grip strength and also we would test vertical jump. And if, uh, like, you know, those were two markers where if your vertical goes down and then all of a sudden the grip kind of goes down, you were overtraining, and then yeah. we would kind of adjust volume and load. But are you saying that actually by manipulating some of the diet stuff, you can kind of show that, like, maybe that, hey, uh, you're reaching a point of overtraining, it's time to kind of pivot and start doing some different diet stuff? Absolutely, my friend. It is huge. A huge study called the Honolulu Heart Study showed all-cause mortality directly related to grip strength. And in athletes, you start to see a one to two kilogram drop, you need to change some stuff right away uh, because that's a vicious spiral down. You know, I'll tell you the power of supplementation too using branched-chain amino acids, L-leucine in particular. Do you know most of our research on those comes from the intensive care unit setting. There was a great study done, and forgive me, I can't think of the guy's name off the top of my head, but he took 30 healthy men, 
uh, between the age of 18 and 28, I believe, and just laid them in bed. They didn't get to move. They didn't even get to stand up to pee. They did everything in bed for 30 days. One group ate normally, the other group ate normally, plus added L-leucine, the branched-chain amino acid. The group that added the L-leucine had no loss in muscular strength or muscle size after 30 days of absolutely non-use. And so back to our regimen, what would I build for you? Based on those numbers, based on those labs, we're going to start talking about supplements to optimize your body. And branched-chain amino acids are probably right there at the top to help protect that muscle, especially in an overtraining state. So, yeah, following those markers, I would encourage everyone out there. Yeah, it's about 200 bucks uh, for those little uh, grip strength uh, measuring devices. But, man, what a great way to monitor yourself and say, okay, I'm, not, I'm overtraining. I'm doing something wrong. I need to take a day off. How many of us really who want are probably addicted to this stuff? My wife calls my training my fix. Apparently, I go home and, and beat the kids and kick the dog or whatever if I haven't exercised that day because I'm an ass. So she looks at me and goes, gives me that slanted eyes, turns her head kind of sideways to the right and says, did you get your fix today? And that means I got to go back to the gym before she'll let me in the house and eat dinner. Um, so those of you like me that exercise every day, no matter what, because it's our fix, boy, following a grip strength is a great way to determine, eh, I do need a day off. Oh, I need to adjust my supplementation. So, Doc, with grip strength, like, uh, do you come in and just do a baseline on it? Is it something where you just like, hey, I'm going to take a baseline over the course of like two weeks and then just kind of figure out where, where my – uh, like kind of like what my average is and then start looking for a decline. I think that's how we did it where we came in and it was like every training day. And then we also did it on off days and we started kind of trying to optimize it over a course of time. Exactly, sir. It's just like scale weight. You pick yeah. something where you can control as many variables as possible. And my grip strength measure is right next to my scale, right next to my bed. So I wake up before I drink, before I pee, before I eat or anything, check a scale weight, check my body comp, check my grip strength, there's my baseline. And that's just the best way to control your variables. Doc, so that's always a question I, I kind of think about when I'm coaching or programming with athletes. Is this too much or is this too little? Uh, could you talk about some of the other things we're looking for outside of grip strength in terms of performance, sleep that are that can be modified from the athlete's perspective? Absolutely. Um, I think one of the first signs of elevated cortisol in athletes, you're, you feel extremely tired, but you're not sleeping. I think restless sleep is a great indicator of overtraining, a very simple one to follow. I'm just not sleeping lately. I'm restless or the classic, what we call in medicine, the HPA, HPA axis awakening. And that's if you wake up between 1 and 3 in the morning, yeah, your cortisol is way too high. You're overtraining. Simple way to do it. You can follow blood pressure. Blood pressure will usually go up a little, and just 5 or 10 millimeters of mercury in your top number systolic blood pressure will change. Your heart rate will not recover as quickly. So part of an indicator of overall health and fitness is how quickly your heart rate recovers to normal. So if I'm busting butt on the treadmill doing a HIT routine, I get my heart rate up to 160. I rest for five minutes. My heart rate's back to 70, and that's the way it's supposed to be. But if my heart rate goes back in, to 90, eh, I may be overtraining here. My heart rate recovery isn't as uh, good as it was. Gaining fat, especially around the waist area with the amount of exercise and eating you're doing is another indicator that cortisol is high. Like like you said, dad fat in the back or in the upper belly, particularly upper belly right under the ribs. If you feel like your skin fold is thicker there, and a little side note for the skin fold, people that follow skin calibers, on guys, I don't do lower abdomen because everyone's kind of big there. That, that's, that's where I hold all my beer. But my upper abs 
right under my ribs are real responsive to my cortisol levels and my, my stress levels. I see that get thick and thicker, it, literally within days or two of stressful things. So a way to follow it there. Those are the best at-home measures to do. So just to review, are you sleeping, particularly waking up between one and three? What's your heart rate recovery doing? Or do you have a slight bump in your blood pressure? Is your grip strength going down? Simple things you can do. Now on the medical side, I can see it in your labs, looking at basic blood counts or your blood chemistries. Easy thing to do, and no docs know this. This is a kicker to it because the labs I check still fall within, quote, normal limits. I don't know what the hell normal is. I've never met a normal person to date. Uh, but if you have elevated monocytes, which is a type of white blood cell, that usually means your cortisol is a little high. If your white counts just slightly up from baseline, you're probably over-exercising. I can look at other labs to determine, are there is there something going on beyond what I, I'm thinking, or is this truly just an overtraining <clears throat> excuse me, or under recovery. I like to call it under recovery versus overtraining because anybody that trains like uh, like the people listening to this and you guys and me, we can't really overtrain. I mean, it's that's what we do, but we can under recover. And so that's why I call it under recovery syndrome. And monitoring labs, monitoring those other things are a great way to follow how you're doing. And really, when you feel like you've hit a wall, I guarantee those those things have changed. No, Doc, that's, uh, dude, that, that's exactly what we're looking at. So uh, so you bring people in, you do a full assessment, you do uh, all their labs and everything, and then from there you get in there and, and probably, is there a baseline you start them at, or is there some place that kind of everybody starts differently based on kind of, like I'm sure you run into people that are trying to optimize performance, people that are trying to optimize body fat, people that are longevity. I mean, so everybody's kind of tweaked a little bit different based on what their approach is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. Uh, a 49-year-old female diabetic with 200 pounds extra fat, I actually do something very similar to the 124-pound fitness model. And that is look at the hormones. Are they optimized? Make sure their, their mitochondria or their powerhouses in every cell are optimally responding. We do that by measuring insulin resistance. If anybody is insulin resistant whatsoever, and there's some simple markers you can do beyond blood sugar, um, such as your triglyceride to HDL ratio. So your doctor, or you could get a lipid panel from your doctor, a fasting lipid panel, and if your triglyceride to HDL ratio is greater than two, you have mild insulin resistance going on. Therefore, your mitochondria, your powerhouses in your each cell in your body are not working the same. Well, that can be same with an athlete who's overtraining as it can be with a 49-year-old super obese diabetic. So my first intervention with all those is to Let's optimize insulin resistance. Let me prescribe these supplements. Let's control cortisol. I can't always control the stressors, but I can control the way your body's handling the stress. So an exercise is a little different there. If, if the same 49-year-old woman uh, husband just left her, I can't control that, but I can help her body deal with it. If it's a, an exerciser, I can say, okay, we need to cut back on your routine a little short-term to get you sleeping again, to get you optimized nutritionally, get your mitochondria working, and then you're going to be fine. So my first step is to help them understand that. And then the second step is suggest a few supplements. Um, I think one of the mo biggest deficiencies out there, and, and this is to this crowd in particular, in the powerlifting, heavyweight moving crowd, the biggest deficiency I see is magnesium. We just don't have enough. Magnesium is involved in over 300 different variables in your body. 
um, from controlling your blood pressure to your muscle strength to your cardiac function to brain power to mitochondrial optimization to insulin uh, sensitivity and nobody has any so I look at magnesium levels in the red blood cell and then I dose high, do mag high dose magnesium. Um, if someone's really stressed I may use some philodendron with magnolia. There's actually a product out there called uh, I think it's pronounced Relora. I can't remember. Relora, yeah, R-E-L-O-R-A that helps lower cortisol um, so that's where I'll start there. Again, trying to get optimal function because one of the primary complaints I see with, in particularly high training athletes, is fatigue the rest of the day. So we all do some sort of pre-workout stimulant. Uh, I was a big fan of ephedra before the government took that, but we won't go there. Um, some sort of stimulant, some, and that's why people come to weight loss doctors to try to get fentramine. They're just so tired all the time. They want to buzz. They want to wake up. So my first step with any people is to optimize mitochondrial function so you have the energy without the drugs and it happens pretty quick people feel better within days when you get on the right supplements and you remove the offending food so that's the next thing I do okay my my friend sir ma'am based on your labs based on what I'm seeing based on your body comp based on your grip strength you need to avoid the processed man-made foods you need to avoid all the liquid calories the alcohol the pops the fruit juices the energy drinks you need to move this out of your diet and I want you to start following these dietary recommendations. Eat at this time of day, this type of food, and start going forward that way. From there we get a little more specific into the type of eating based on food preferences, based on their schedule. Schedule is very important because uh, most of us eat you know, four, five, six, seven times a day. That's very hard for a lot of people. And so I, rather than having them change their whole life to follow an eating program, I will meet their schedule where they're at and, and design an eating program around that schedule uh, because that's really to make it last long term and have them get the health benefits from it, that's what I have to do. I have to meet them where they're at. Um, next step is to develop an exercise routine uh, of some sort and usually a lot simpler than you think. Even some of the top level athletes I work with um, in the off season, they're training two, three times a day, maybe 40, 50 minutes, or excuse me, two, three times a week, maybe 40 or 50 minutes a time and that's it. Why? Because we're keeping that stress hormone down, we're optimizing insulin glucagon kinetics, we're making sure all the other hormones are at their top max, their thyroid hormones performing optimally, their testosterone's on the very high side of normal, if not higher, and they have plenty of free available testosterone for their growth cycles, for their bulking up, if you will. Um, absolutely essential to do that without all that tons of exercise. And I think a lot of even, yeah, especially uh, a few of the guys I've worked with the NFL, they, they naturally, for lack of better words, during the off season don't exercise as much. And I think that's probably one of the best things they can do for themselves. Some of them don't do anything and get the overboard. You, I'm sure you remember spring training with a few of your colleagues there. Yeah, Doc, uh, John's actually stepped out real quick, oh, but I wanted to go back a little bit to talking about the problematic foods. And we're seeing a bit of a resurgence in – uh, in certain, we'll call it fitness or performance circles about, uh, you know, this glorifying the, if it fits my macros type of, uh, approach. And it kind of, it's something that we combated. And I know John and his colleagues on the nutrition side of things combated maybe eight, eight years ago with, uh, kind of the, the zone approach to nutrition. And, uh, can you just talk a little bit about the problematic foods and, and what are kind of the universal issues that you see, whether it's something that 
that drives into a, a micronutrient deficiency that would affect these hormonal changes that you have to ultimately undo uh, when you when you work with some of these problematic people. Oh man, that's a great question. You hit the magic words, micronutrient deficiencies, right on the button, man. Anything man-made or process. So uh, using the store analogy, when you walk into a store, take a hard right and just stay on the outside of the shelves. That's where all the fruit and vegetables are, the beer is, oh, I mean milk, excuse me, um, all the, the meats, the cheeses, everything are on the outside. Anything in the middle is man-made or processed. It's going to survive the nuclear wars with the cockroaches. There is absolutely no micronutrients in that stuff. They're micronutrient depleted. So people that focus on that have these huge micronutrient deficiencies, even eating them once in a while to reach your quote-unquote macro level, and you're going to start depleting yourself. The chemicals in there, the, the preservatives, uh, the phylates, I mean, I mean, things that are packaged in plastic. You wouldn't believe what leaches into the food when something's packaged in a plastic container. All those things cause these terrible hormonal changes that just literally ruin people without them realizing it. So I do not agree with that. I absolutely agree with you guys that we need to focus on the quality of food we're eating as much as what we're eating because well, – oh, sorry. The, oh, the, the idea of like uh, – you know, I mean I uh, – like there was a, a you know, interesting discussion where you know, I, I got into with some people where – you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, if, if you're looking at just purely aesthetics, like if you were going to diet somebody down, uh, you know, a, a carb's a carb, a protein's a protein, and, you know, if you, you know, balance your macros and, you know, kind of fit within it, kind of do all these things, that a diet of lesser food quality can get somebody in shape. And I think that's what kind of drives me the fucking batty a little bit is you see a lot of these guys that are like, well, you know, I continue to eat like uh, pizza and donuts and I'm eating this because it fits my macros. No, donuts are the big thing now. Well, yeah, and, 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 you know, and what fucking kills me is there's not a single worse food on the planet than taking uh, gluten and basically deep frying it in some form of like trans fats yeah. and then covering it with fucking sugar. So like, you know, but like, you know, and then you see these, you know, a lot of people that are in, you know, pretty lean, real good shape consuming this stuff. And they're like, well, if it fits my macros. And the, the thing that I have, I mean, having, you know, not only played at a high level um, and, and just a little background on me, uh, you know, I, I came out of Berkeley and then got drafted to the Eagles and uh, came in and started as a rookie. And then I ended up getting hurt my rookie year and rupturing my patellar tendon. And I had to rehab the whole year, and um, that's when I started working with Dr. Di Pasquale. And the uh, the thing which was interesting is I went and got all my blood work done and uh, found out that I had, like, some really bad food allergies. Uh, the biggest one was soy, gluten, and corn, and I think there was, like, one other. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, so it was basically I, I – and so I just stopped eating all those foods – and all of a sudden, as I was following Dr. Dave Pasquale's diet, and I kind of just basically cut out all the foods that I was allergic to, and uh, all of a sudden, I leaned out, I was bigger, I was stronger, I was faster, and I recovered a lot better, and my body didn't hurt. And so I just never went back to eating those foods. And it was interesting that I never saw, uh, you know, people like uh, if you were to try to diet somebody, and I, I'm sure you can diet somebody on fucking beer and potato chips and you know, eat turkey. <laughs> But at the end of the day, their blood work is never going to be as good and they're never going to be as healthy and perform at as high a level as they would if you were eating a diet of food quality. Absolutely. And right on the nose, they're never going to be at that top-level game. And health-wise, like I showed you through one of the first statements I made was I care about my athlete's health. And guys and gals that eat like that, they are not healthy, dude. The skinny fat person. 
uh, endurance runners are a classic example of skinny fat people. I mean, they are the most unhealthy group of people, have some of the highest rates of funky cancers in the world, these endurance athletes, because the health is not taken care of. I do have to mention one food, though, I've been seeing a lot of lately, and that's deep fried bacon with sea salt on it. So you're getting your fats, you're getting your salt, you're getting your sweets, uh, or chocolate-covered bacon with sea salt on it. Yeah, I've, I'm seeing that this. Sounds, that sounds disgusting. Oh, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I've, I've eaten it. Uh, <laughs> have, have you ever had it? Yeah, I've, I've had too. exactly that. It's, Was it I mean, good? It tastes like chocolate, salty bacon. It well, is, but, uh, you know. but here's the thing. I like salt, I like bacon, and I like chocolate. And I don't know if combining them in one is going to suffice because it's almost too much. Yeah. You know, it it's kind of like you I going was in drinking and, beer with it, so that well, it's, it, it's kind of like drinking a Long Island iced tea. You don't really know what you're drinking, but it's got a, a whole lot of shit in there. Yes, it does. It hits you later. Yeah. You know, you had a you had another great point just about those being together. I think it's important for people to realize that how food is cooked and processed and delivered also affects the hormones. So, cooking rice, for example, a good wild rice. If you don't cook it as long, so it's a little harder, it has a lower sugar load. And most of us, if we're going to do carbs, we usually add what I call PFF to it, protein, fat, or fiber, to help slow down that insulin release. So a lot of the processed foods are so processed that when they hit the gut, they literally melt. They're instantly dissolved, and your insulin levels go through the roof. And that's what causes your body to start soaring these fats as triglycerides around your liver, starting this whole process of illness, even though you may look good on the outside, not to the quality you could if you didn't eat that crab, but you may look okay, and that's very fooling. That that drives me crazy when someone preaches about eating donuts and they have a six-pack. Yeah. And I just want to, dude, let me take your blood. Let me show you what's really going on here. Yeah, well, that's well, well, you... well, we fucking fight this all the time, and it's like, oh, you know, like here I am, and I'm, you know, great shape, 4%. I'm eating all this fucking, and I'm like, I'm like, first of all, what we don't see is the uh, the gamma trend and the test and the uh, the Winstrol and the Computerol <laughs> and the fucking yeah. T3 medication and the hour of fucking cardio you do and the uh, yes. uh, 600 calories a day that you're fucking consuming. Right. So it, it's like it's it's a it's a big scam. And the, the the thing that I always get just twisted up on is uh you know this idea of like um you know hey well if it fits your macros you can put anything in. I mean you know like I I had a an athlete who's who's been who's a, a good friend who's followed some diet stuff by some other people and she's like oh I had to get 70 grams of carbohydrates so I ate two pop tarts and they said that was fine. <laughs> and I was like like ah yes. But any any fucking doctor or person that's literally gonna say, you know, like I, I can see if you're in a crunch, like hey, I, I you know I'm on the run, like this is all I got, like I can do it. But I, I'm like I just cannot fucking wrap my head around uh, the idea of uh, well, you know, just eat those pop tarts because those are the but same. If you're going as to get pop tarts, you can get better. Like, no, but like you know, like no pop -tart like pop let's say you're doing like uh, sweet potatoes or rice or uh, oats, like the other day. Uh, um, I, I found some, it was like, uh, I want to say it was like quinoa and, uh, like cream, like, like cream of uh, rice cereal they mixed up and like, uh, I, I've been feeding it to my kids. They, um, just, they wanted to have some hot cereal in the morning. So I, I got them something different. I mixed it up and it was actually pretty good. And I think it was like half a cup was like 70 grams of carbohydrate. And like, I'm looking at that and I'm like, so you're telling me that this half a cup of a little of ground quinoa with a cream of rice 
uh, is the same uh, carbohydrate load of two Pop-Tarts, and you're telling me that these are totally fucking balanced. So I'm like, that's bullshit. I know that's not fucking bullshit. And the only problem is, is in a lot of ways, it's fucking enabling. Because yeah. it allows people to be like, well, so-and-so said it's okay, and this is how I always want to eat. And I'm like, dude, what you don't need is fucking your inner fat kid getting enabled by other, some other asshole. <laughs> that's exactly right. And that's where, like, we get twisted up. And, like, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, the other hard thing, Doc, and, and you know, for, for you having worked with performance-based athletes, like, my whole life was based on performance, this idea of, like, uh, you know, I didn't get paid to to look a certain way. My body fat didn't matter. My strength, none of the things I did in the weight room, I got paid to perform on the field. And right. what I did in terms of my training, my nutrition, and all those approaches allowed me to play at a high level and also allowed me to recover week in and week out. Whereas I ran into other guys who always had like, you know, oh, it was either body ache, uh, uh, you know, arthritis, gout, I mean, all these other problems. And I was like, dude, if you're getting gout, you have fucking too much uric acid in the system, and it's too high in sugar. you got to cut some of those sugars out. There's mm -hmm. a reason it's crystallizing, just some basic shit. And, you know, that's the thing where, you know, and, and I really what, you know, power athlete and why we started this whole thing, it's about empowering your performance, but it's also about combating the bullshit out there. Oh, like, yeah. so much fucking bad information, and I think that's why when I read your book, and I'm so stoked to reach out to you, was um, it was – so, uh, like, non-crazy. It was like, hey, you know what, here's your home base. This is a, kind of your basic and, uh, you know, just really kind of balancing things and then kind of just manipulating carbs and fats and really being able to kind of attack it in a way uh, that, you know, just makes sense and, you know, not staying too long. So it's um, it's great to hear you say this because, I mean, do we fight this shit all the time? Oh, I'm with you, brother. I can't stand it. I get all the experts coming in. Uh, self-proclaimed or being told by another fitness expert, oh, just eat all this stuff, it's fine, because you're getting this much protein, carbs, and fat. And There are so many variables that are accounted for, and, and that's why I like to look at it. What is the hormonal response to this food I'm eating? And how quickly is insulin responding to this food? And how quickly are am I changing the, the kinetics of my hormones, the leptin insulin thing, when I eat? I mean, eating that food also, every time you, and I'll give you a quick, uh, sorry if I, I bore you with some strict physiology, but I find it fascinating. I think you will too. When you spike insulin real quick with a Pop-Tart, you also elevate serotonin. Well, serotonin in your brain is to feel good. I feel great. Dopamine goes up. That's a pleasure a hormone. You feel great. Well, mom and dad taught us when we were very young, what goes up must come down. And so then you crash serotonin, and of course you're craving another Pop-Tart. Because of that, process quick absorbing food cause that and so these people get in these vicious addi addictive cycles craving that serotonin release whereas if you're eating the right foods you're adding protein fiber and fat to them they're they're whole they're uh, organic they're not processed you don't have that response you eat you get full the hormones do what they're supposed to insulin shuttles all those excellent calories into your biceps and you're set you're good for a couple hours. You do it again based on your schedule. And that's really on a very basic physiological level. That's where that argument we hear totally breaks down. If you think of it, how are the hormones responding to what I'm eating? Then that process shit should just be thrown out. I can a bit about um, like uh, 
kind of uh, partitioning carbohydrates. I mean, it really seems like, um, and, and all like my, my own stuff and everybody we've always worked with, you know, protein is really, uh, you know, kind of the, the baseline in terms of like, you know, uh, body composition. I've never seen people really improve body comp by eating over about a gram and a half, but I've seen people have shittier body comp by not eating enough protein. What I've really seen <laughs> right. that's pretty interesting is actually carbohydrates, really like how people are kind of manipulating them, um, you know, because for a long time it was kind of a higher protein, higher carb, lower fat, and then we kind of had a switch up where now it's kind of, you know, higher fat, higher protein, you know, and everybody got stuck on this low carb deal. And, you know, you definitely need carbohydrates, but, you know, really the idea of uh, partitioning the majority of carbohydrate around that training window is really what I've found really is really kind of magical a lot of ways and really helped us a lot. But it kind of, you know, flies in the face, like, because now there's things like carb backloading where, hey, I want you to do this and eat them later in the day. And for me, the train in the morning, the majority of probably 70 plus percent of my carbohydrates come in that pre and post workout meal. And then for the most of the rest of the day, I just kind of taper them off and, you know, fat kind of elevates a little bit. So, uh, you know, can you kind of talk a little bit about, you know, that kind of idea of carbohydrates for fuel and how that really kind of, uh, you know, transcends and how that really affects, especially if you're talking about, you know, protein synthesis and, you know, elevating uh, cortisol levels and catabolic and all that. Absolutely. Um, partition, great word. That's exactly right. Your body will use what you give it. And so part of the reason the high protein, low carb, low fat diets don't work is those proteins via the process of gluconeogenesis, which means the production of sugar from non-sugar sources, that's what your body does. And so your body says, no, I don't care if you're using just protein, no carbs. I'm going to turn it into sugar and use it as carbs. You have to replace the sugar with fat. So when I write an eating program, I start with, okay, how much protein does this person need? And then I say, how much fat do we need based on their training schedule? You're exactly right, dude. 100% of my carbs are pre and post. And then I do high fat, uh, moderate protein the rest of the day. Um, that's the way I live, and that's the way most of my athletes live. On average, if I was to get guess, and this even goes for some of the endurance goofballs I work with, even uh, super uh, endurance athletes like triathletes and whatnot, 60 to 120 grams of carbs a day, fine. They're fine. We teach their body how to utilize fat. Remember that, back to that mitochondria, the powerhouse of each cell. You, it will use, I mean, it's basic Krebs cycle stuff, stuff we learned in high school biochemistry. Your body will use what you give it. Give it fat. Teach it to utilize fat. Use the carbs around your exercise for the quick burst energy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because that one does a couple things. One, the carbs there increase insulin a little. Insulin antagonizes cortisol. So in a high-stress, high-exercise environment, by having little carbs, you're actually keeping cortisol lower by adding carbohydrates because that insulin response. Number two, your body utilizes those, those very same hormones to partition the nutrients to the muscle. So in an endurance athlete situation, we call it glycogen sparing. So they'll, they start turning to fat utilization pretty quick within mile one or two in some of the athletes I work with. And then they glycogen store for the final run. So their body's using fat and then they have to turn it up at the very end of the race. They utilize that glycogen that's left over. For someone like you and I, again, basing my dietary regimen on my training schedule, I would utilize carbs for those heavier, more intense workouts. If I want to get through, let's say I do plan to do some hit cardio after I do my resistance training, I need a little extra sugar there to even get on the freaking stair step or much less use it. And so partitioning those carbs around that time of day is exactly 
what our athletes should be doing. And then the rest of the time, keep the carbs low, keep the fat higher, keep that protein adequate. And man, you're going to see the results. Your body changes. No, I mean, we, we've seen it. I mean, it's, um, you know, it just, it, it, it it's interesting because, uh, you know, I'm sure there's science that's, you know, uh, you know, both, I guess, researched and, and studied in the lab, but then there's also some anecdotal stuff. And it's funny, some of the anecdotal stuff I've seen has almost been more convincing than a lot of the scientific literature. <laughs> yeah. Whereas you're like, you know, uh, you know, like, the, you know, I've seen people go on, you know, pure ketogenic diets. I mean, I, when I got out of the NFL, I was in a, a study for Dr. Amen based on uh, brain injury. And I came out and I had, um, you know, some significant damage on the left side of my brain and they wanted to, you know, uh, supplements and they were kind of going through all these different things, but there was really no way to heal the brain. And uh, a good friend of mine's a doctor of organic chemistry at Harvard, a guy named Matt Lalonde. And I called him on the way out, and I was like, hey, uh, Matt, you know, this is the problem. And he was like, you know, I, I got a research team, so we're going to pull some articles and do a little bit of research on, uh, on on brain damage and what we've seen with people that have, you know, both chronic and acute kind of injuries. And so he hit me back a couple of days later, and he's like, you know, we pulled something like 10,000 research articles. And the one thing we found is actually a ketogenic diet being extremely, uh, you know, beneficial for both acute and chronic brain, brain damage, Alzheimer's. He kind of went through it. And so that day I uh, – basically did a started a ketogenic diet and I don't think I ate any more than like maybe 25 or 30 grams of carbohydrates for almost a year and uh, I came out the other side with extreme clarity but also had lost like you know 35 pounds and like it had killed my training and what it was really you know it was great for both um, uh, you know mental clarity and I felt like really sharp you know based off those ketones but uh, it's extremely hard to gain muscle and maintain muscle without carbohydrate and so like I always meet people that are on these very very low carbohydrate diets and you know they always ask me a little bit about it and I'm like you know the reason the anabolic diet works is that it's you know basically it's basically doing huge hormonal flip-flopping by putting you in a ketogenic state and then you know you're doing two days of you know 60 to 70 percent of your total caloric intake a day from carbohydrates I mean I would sit down and eat like 15 pancakes that were like you know 600 gram of carbohydrate and all of a sudden, as I was sitting there eating, all of a sudden, like, I would start sweating so bad that, like, you know, my wife's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. It's normal and, food sweat. Yeah, it's normal food. And uh, those hormonal switches. But I'm like, you know, the one thing that Marlo even talks about is that, you know, don't push the keto out past, you know, the initial uh, introduction phase. Don't push it out longer than five days because right. if not, it's going to be killing your muscles. So really that alone kind of kind of taught me a lot uh, about, you know, the, the idea that you need carbohydrates for, uh, muscle gain and really, you know, it's tough to really gain a lot of muscle on a low carb diet, but I mean, it works extremely well in terms of, you know, mental clarity and, and, uh, you know, helping people that have some form of brain dysfunction and, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, acute or chronic, I mean, so, and even some, some other problems associated with it. So the problem becomes so everything is a tool and effectively, you know, everything has a, a time for it to be purposeful. Like obviously a ketogenic diet can be extremely beneficial for somebody that's having some problems you know, if you want to gain muscle, you have to eat carbs, and then there kind of comes with this balance. But, uh, you know, and I'm sure you've seen, you know, and th this was one that was pretty amazing. I, I went back and I researched a bunch of different bodybuilders, and I had actually found bodybuilders that ate a low-carb diet. I found bodybuilders that ate a uh, high-protein, uh, higher-carb, no-fat diet, and I found bodybuilders that ate a high-protein, higher-fat, lower-carb. I found them eating uh, moderate-carb, moderate-protein, higher-fat. I mean, every single diet, I found bodybuilders that were all competitive winning on every different diet. Yeah, and absolutely. The one, and the, the only thing I could deduce is that uh, uh, consistency and probably there's some genetic adaptations that people have 
that allow them to kind of suffice within these diets. Absolutely, sir. <clears throat> there are genotypes, the AMI1 genotype in particular, um, that is a very good metabolizer of carbohydrates. And I have, I have this, working with a number of bodybuilders at that level, I can tell you, yeah, some of them can pound pancakes and blueberry syrup like there's no tomorrow. Other people look at it and they gain a little belly fat. Um, a little side note, you can use lipid panels and a, a genetic test called apolipoprotein E and determine how your body metabolizes carbohydrates. Really cool stuff. And that stuff's available. Most doctors understand those labs. They might not understand how to interpret them. Uh, but we also know, I think you know intuitively, if I eat high carbs, I don't feel the same and I get fat. When I eat high fat, I feel better. I don't get much. I just focus my carbs around my training to maintain my muscle mass. So I think you don't need the fancy genetic tests to do it. It's intuitive to a lot of us that train a lot. But those tests are available out there. They're pretty dang cool to see. We, we started working with uh, Dan Reardon from Muscle Genes, uh, who's Fitness Genes. Uh -huh. uh, they hit us up uh, about evaluating their stuff. They know that um, you know we work with a lot of different athletes, and we're pretty jiggy, and for the most part, we don't really back things that are fucking full of shit. And so <laughs> he, uh, he he actually uh, came out, and we, we, we all got genetically tested, and it was pretty interesting um, going back, and once I got my results, if you had given me a, a, a survey, I could have told you... Yeah. 95% within certainty of, of how I was genetically set up. It was like, I was like for like the ace gene RR for the sprinter. I was like, yeah, big shot uh, yep. played in the NFL. Uh, like, you know, the muscle deal. The, the one that was most interesting for me is um, based on my thing, uh, I am extremely efficient with carbohydrate. So his deal is because you're efficient with carbohydrate, you don't need as much and why things, and he's like probably the reason why a, a ketogenic diet or something that's a little lower carb has worked, uh, you know, tends to work very well for you. Um, whereas, you know, uh, like certain other people that are inefficient with carbohydrate, those things actually fucking destroy them. And we have had numerous clients that like the minute you drop their carbs below hundred grams, all of a sudden their whole life's coming apart. Yes. My wife is like, I'm going to kill myself. My wife's going to fucking divorce me. I don't want to do anything. I'm hiding in my car. And we're like, dude, it's just carbs. Like have a sweet potato. Settle, yeah. Settle the fuck down. <laughs> like don't eat a pop tart. Go find something else. You know, like, you know, let's do it. So it's um it's pretty interesting uh you know based on some you know genetic type and uh you know those are all you know things like you said it's readily available like fitness genes out there and I think it's relatively inexpensive like 150 bucks to get it done and it provides some really interesting information for you. Yeah, it's so neat. But like you said, it's it's intuitive. We kind of know. It's just kind of neat to confirm it. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's always fun to have somebody be like, oh, I know that. And then. Uh, you know, what's been cool is because we have a pretty big back end of people following our training, we're able to really kind of test these things. So like we, you know, got a bunch of people into the muscle genes and we've been kind of running kind of different things with, uh, you know, within the group. And we've sound like some really neat stuff. Like, uh, like we've been using EMS, like with the complex units to, uh, you know, which uh, stimulate, you know, motor unit firing. So it's been, it's worked really well in terms of indiscriminate motor unit firing and teaching people how to balance injuries and kind of really maximize their performance which has been uh, huge for us. So, I mean, it's always kind of kind of playing this together, but uh, no, I mean, it's, um, no, it's stoked. I, I actually, uh, uh, as uh, uh, after reading your book and then talking to you, you're actually uh, um, even more, in, you know, good about this yeah. stuff than I really imagined. I was like, dude, you know, because you're a guy, yeah. Well, then you, you read people's stuff and you're like, oh, you know, uh, this is pretty good, but it sounds like um, not only did you write this book, you've actually have, now you have about another 10, 12 years of, of information. So, and, and there's a rewrite of uh, Better Than Steroids right now? 
Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm trying to pull in a lot more of the science and really focusing. As I said, I, I touched on the hormones way back then in 04 when I wrote that sucker. But this next version, I'm going to get into the detail, especially because uh, steroid use is so prevalent. Even even medically prescribed testosterone replacement therapy is so prevalent. But man, it changes stuff. You start messing with one hormone, the rest of them kind of go wacky. So you got to, we change the way people eat when they even come in and they're on testosterone replacement therapy legitimately so so doc and so there there's different uh like um, nutrition protocols for people there's different nutrition protocols for people that are actually on drugs like for example if you were to come in and have a bodybuilder who's like hey this is and you know for those of you guys listening uh the sport of bodybuilding is obviously you know predicated on training hard and you know trying to diet put on as much muscle and as much as like a football helmet and jersey are for football players drugs are part of the deal and i don't know where people all of a sudden like forgot that a little bit i'm like they're just part of the deal if you're going to go down that it's road it's not all daddy no i don't think they no. want to admit it well but it, no. it's uh, i i've never met a bodybuilder other than landscape. maybe like, it's my, like nobody wants to admit olympic no, athletes no 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 dude uh, ever dude, i've only met one bodybuilder that claimed uh, that he didn't take stuff, and it was Michael Hearn. He's like, I don't take anything. I'm like, dude, well, I mean, all the other guys are always pretty forthright. I mean, they don't publicize it. But, like, so what's interesting is that there's actually different nutrition protocols for people that are on drugs than people that aren't on drugs, which is another thing I'm getting to when a lot of people open up these magazines or talk to these gurus or these different guys, like, hey, I'm doing this diet. What they forget is I'm not on a fucking three grams of testosterone. Mm-hmm. And right. I'm not taking right. some of these It drugs. might not work for me. Is so it, it, it's kind of <laughs> like uh, uh, I, I remember when I was started lifting weights. Uh, I was like 14 years old. We got a hold of Flex magazine, and they had body, uh, Dorian Yates pre-Olympia training program. So you know what we did? Dorian we did Yates. Dorian Yates pre-Olympia training program when I was 14 years old. And you know what happened? I got tendonitis in my knee, and I got fucking hurt, <laughs> and I was fucked up. And yeah. uh, the reason being is, and you know, and it's just like anything, like I'm not Dorian Yates and I was 14 years old. I shouldn't have been doing that stuff. I should have been just on a basic linear progression, doing what we do. And, uh, you know, there were fucking huge problems with it. So uh, that's another thing that we run into. It's like, you know, yeah, you're getting this information, but everybody's basing it like me, me, me. This is what worked for me. And we're like, well, we don't know what's behind the screen. And now if it's something where there's a diet that's uh, legitimately works for you, but you're on all these drugs, it's not going to translate and kind of extrapolate over to me, let alone your training. Absolutely. Oh, man, it changes you. You know, another word for hormone is messenger. And it's kind of like if you guys are up in Illinois, I believe. I am. Those guys are out in Cali. Um, Callie, so yeah. let's say I get done with the radio, the podcast today, and I write you guys a letter. Hey, man, so much, thanks so much for having me on. It was a pleasure talking to you. What do I give it to? I give it to a messenger or a mailman or a woman who gives it to another messenger. Well, let's say a, the guy out in, in Nevada on the way to Cali loses it. Well, what we do in Western medicine is we go, I come to you and say, hey, why didn't you guys get that letter? We, we miss the fact that when a, one messenger is off, the entire chain is off. So when someone comes to me on three grams of test a week, I can tell you everything else is jacked up. Thyroid's not functioning right. Leptin levels are too low. It's messed up. So, yes, I have to change what diet they do. They're recovering better, but they're they're – it's just so different. It's it's hard to explain that, yeah, you, you guys hit it on the head. You cannot read a muscle magazine that's selling supplements and take what they do and apply it to yourself. It doesn't work. Yeah, when I, when I was listening to, like, the the whole performance, you know, um, how 
how genetically gifted athletes can, you know, uh, eat specific foods and kick ass on the field. I was, uh, I was thinking about like how I'm sure there's more genetically gifted, like bodybuilders than, than others. Right. So, I mean, can you, can you kind of get, eat some of these processed foods or foods, you know, that aren't optimal and still get out on the, on the stage and, and compete, you know, in, in an aesthetic environment at a high level, you know, yeah, or I, no. Um, well, I think you like, can, but kind of as we alluded to earlier, how much better would they be if they clean? Well, I, I think, mean, I guess I'm thinking of like these images of like, uh, like Palumboism, right? Like that, that Roid gut. I mean, that's sure. Denny, you don't have to... Denny, 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 think about it like this. And, you know, if you go back to, uh, uh, you know, that, the, the model we had of the, the climber dude with, with that uh, athletic uh, paradigm. Yeah, you know, the map. The, yeah, the, uh, the, the map for, you know, athletic performance. As you get farther uh, close, or if you want to say farther out or farther close, as you get closer in, um, all of a sudden the genetic outliers become more prevalent. And what happens and what I realize is, is the, what, when you kind of filter up to that top, top level, it becomes these genetic outliers that, uh, you know, it's almost like things become not as, like, I guess you could say important as they were. At Environmental level. factors for well, normal people are less well, important. Well, okay, so, so so case in point, we were talking okay. about Al, Al Harris the other day, uh, yeah. who I played with in Philly. Al Harris was like 6'1", 175 pounds, uh, was probably 4% body fat, and I saw him eating a diet of, like, chicken nuggets, uh, fries, and a large diet Coke. And the crazy part is he would eat that and whatever he wanted. Like, they'd, like, do things, guys, would eat Chris Priest, all these foods. And the dude was shredded, like, all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I watched guys that were literally, like, the biggest genetic freaks that, uh, you know, I watched Brian Waters come in and bench five and 550 for, like, six reps and hadn't touched a weight in six months. So, like, for me, one, I couldn't eat the chicken McNuggets and the fries and all that shit. And I had to train every day just to be able to get closer to that. But the NFL is based on this idea of, uh, and, you know, and, and bodybuilding especially. If you've ever been around uh, high-level bodybuilders, I mean, just like, you know, the uh, wrist to, you know, bicep kind of ratio, like smaller joints, big muscle bellies. You know, if you notice, like, uh, you know, just their ability to, you know, you, you watch a guy at 165 pounds and he's walking around at, let's say, 230, 240 pounds of lean body mass, and he looks bigger than a 300-pound guy just based on, you know, anthropomorphical ratios and, like, you know, shoulder width, waist, and all yeah. those other things. So, I mean, there's some really, really, really solid uh, just fucking roll of the dice, just good genetics that people have in terms of body structure, how they carry their muscle, how long body, uh, muscle bellies are. Uh, you know, what their, you know, natural waist to shoulder ratio is. I mean, all of these things, and then they probably have all these, they train hard and they take drugs, which basically elevates them, whereas um, there's, I'm sure there's guys out there, and th this was something that was pretty interesting. I remember uh, um, that uh, the guys at the top uh, probably don't take as much drugs as the guys that are literally trying to get up there that will never get there. Right. It's just kind of one of those things where, like, you know, you're just seeing, like, at the top, whether it be bodybuilding, boxing, professional, football, all of these sports, you have basically fucking these outliers that are, you know, ascending to the top where all of a sudden it just becomes, it kind of fucks it up. And it's that thing that Roth talked about the other day. It's called the curse of the gifted. When you are so gifted, everything works. And how do you really base a program off of that for people that aren't as gifted? It becomes right. more and more difficult. 
That's exactly right. Well, you hit it right on the head there. So, Doc, is is like Palumboism an actual clinical syndrome? You know, it, the larger bellies you see in these guys is from insulin, not growth hormones. Okay. So, and, and it's just like a beer belly. It's just like a, uh, it's extra fat around the liver. We call it non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And so you see these bigger guts, if you will, and you see that more with the introduction of insulin into the sport. Um, growth hormone uh, via cadavers has been around for 30 years. I mean, uh, it's rumored that's what Lyle Azedo passed from was something called a, a Crucial Jacob or Peroni's disease from growth hormone uh, versus actual steroids is what caused his death. So it, it's it's more of an insulin effect, and you can really translate it to people with hyperinsulinemia or insulin resistance or even flat-out diabetes. diabetes. They have the same guts. Well, so it's it's kind of the same thing where like uh, that distended gut is basically the fact that just fat is packing around the organs and pressing out. Right. That's that visceral fat, which uh, becomes you know, or I mean the uh, the subcutaneous fat around the organs is fucking. That's like the recipe for fucking disaster. Disaster and make an appointment at the morgue. It is, and if I can reemphasize, these super gifted people that eat like crap, or they still, I see them from the inside. I do the labs on these guys, and the word health and your look are not related. They are not related, and so it, it's to me again from what I do. Uh, yeah, I'd say okay, you're getting away with French fries, a Pepsi, and chicken nuggets, but buddy, you've got a future. You got to think of. You're getting away with it now, but there will come a come a time when you bet you're going to have to pay the piper. Hey, Dr. Willie, I just wanted to, to wrap up with maybe a final question here, because uh, you know, respect each other's time. Um, what would be uh, so? What would be the advice you would give to to an athlete who maybe doesn't have a blood panel or isn't going through the blood testing process? Like, is there would you consider there to be kind of a universal best practice for most people under the bell curve? Absolutely. It might, it's probably just going to be summarizing a lot of the stuff we've talked about the past hour, right? Absolutely. You know, I would focus on your eating more so than anything else. Understand the importance of a pre and post workout meal or your nutrition around that nutrition and timing. Um, make sure you're getting adequate protein. Rule number one, make sure you're getting adequate protein. What that means is a general, general rough statement, 1 to 1.5 gram per pound of scale weight works for most athletes. Um, from there, determine how many carbohydrates you need to train. How much do you really need to around your training time? And that's where you develop your pre and post workout meal. And then the rest of the day, start decreasing your carbs and bumping your fat up. And that will help control those overriding mother hormones, uh, insulin, glucagon, cortisol, uh, 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 leptin. Those will respond to that eating. So, if I was to give a blanket statement to all the wonderful athletes out there, that's where to start. Do not forget the nutritional aspect of your training. If you really want to impress more, get more over your head, whatever your goals are, that's where you're going to make the difference. And then follow that slow, very closely by take a nap as often as you can. Get Shit. your sleep in. I love it. <laughs> Doc, that was uh, – It's, it's a lightning was... to run across like-minded individuals. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah I, Doc, I would, uh, I would bring you in to teach a seminar for us anytime, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hit you up as soon as we get all this. I, uh, yeah, I got a bunch of stuff, but uh, there, that, that was uh, by far 
you know, we, we come across certain people doing this thing that are so like-minded that follow the exact kind of approach that kind of found it in kind of different ways that it's always refreshing and both uh, supportive and enlightening to meet people that you're like, fuck, dude. Because uh, we sometimes talk to people that are so crazy that we're like, uh, are we the crazy ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah like, <laughs> like it's almost like, wait a minute, are, are we this far off? Because uh, this sounds crazy. And uh, no, that was, you know, like we said, like, you know, the, keep the carbs around, you know, the big carb around the pre and the post workout around that training window and, you know, titrate it up as, uh, you know, as the day goes on and, you know, mm-hmm. go in there and train hard and be consistent, follow food quality and, you know, get a good little supplementation, get your blood work done. I mean, everything that uh, uh, an intelligent, smart, non-crazy person would say. Oh, I appreciate that. Now I'm going to have you call my wife since you said non-crazy. <laughs> well, well crazy, crazy is relative to us because <laughs> uh, we're all crazy, so I guess we're, you're, you know, yeah, yeah, you're in good company. Yeah, you're in good company. So good, good. I could tell. I could tell. Well, thanks, Doc. I really appreciate it. And we'll, uh, I'll shoot you an email. We'll stay in touch. But, uh, uh, you know, we'd love to hit you up and bring you on again. And, uh, you know, if you got anything that you want to push or send out. Yeah, where should, yeah, where should people go check out how they can how can they get involved with you? How can they get your help? Where do they got to go? What do they have to do? You know, I am very blessed. My schedule allows me to answer a lot of emails and whatnot. So let me just give you my email address and people are more than welcome to answer a question uh, or ask, ask a question. It's doc at dr w-i-l-l-e-y.com, doc at drwilly.com, or my website, drwilly.com, can give you some directions on uh, how to find me and whatnot. Uh, so I'm happy to answer emails, or I have a lot of clients. Most of my clients fly in to our little southeast Idaho town uh, for a visit. So however I can help people out there, I'm, I'm excited to do so. Awesome. Well, thanks, Doc. And uh... Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll hit you up when this comes out, and we'll, we'll be in touch, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll speak again soon, and uh, wish you all the best. You too, guys. Thank you so much. Happy Thanksgiving to all you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye now. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Well, you know someone's a big deal when their website is their actual name. Find Dr. Warren Willie and his resources at www.drwilly.com. That's W-I-L-L-E-Y. Or you can email him directly at doc at drwilly.com. He has a Facebook page too, so head over there and like it between tagging people in puppy videos or between sharing, of course, our Power Athlete posts. Until next time, bye! <laughs>